This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Hello, and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Jason Goodger, commissioning editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. The World Health Organization recently released a report stating that fungal infections currently kill around 2 million people a year, and their threat to human life is growing. For anyone who's been watching HBO's The Last of Us, a hit TV series centred around a parasitic fungal infection that turns humans into crazed, flesh-hungry zombies, this may be cause for alarm. But how big is the threat of fungal infections? How well equipped are we to deal with them? And could a fungus ever really turn us into mindless zombies? We speak to Rebecca Drummond, Associate Professor of Immunology and Immunotherapy at the University of Birmingham. She tells us about the fascinating life cycles of fungi, the threats they pose to human life, and why we should be doing more to protect ourselves from them. So first off, most of us are familiar with mushrooms. You know, we've all eaten them on pizzas or whatever. But let's, let's start really with the basics. When we're talking about fungi, what's the strict scientific definition? So... Fungi are their own kingdom, so they're completely separate to plants or bacteria or animals. And I think that's some confusion that's often made, right? That they are sort of somehow closely related to plants, for example. But actually, their closest relation is to us. So on this sort of tree of life, um, their closest relation is is animals. So they have very similar biochemistry um, to us, but they do have very distinctive features that make them very different to us. So, for example, fungal cells have cell walls, which is similar to like plant cells, for example. Um, and then they have specific types of carbohydrates and, and other molecules that we don't have. Um, so that's what makes them um, a bit different. And say they can exist in all different shapes and sizes. So you can start from microscopic yeast, which we would use to make you know, beer or bread. And then they can make these very large complex structures like mushrooms that you mentioned. And some of these can be massive. So actually, you know, one, we think one of the largest living things on earth is a fungus, right? So there's this huge um, fungus, they call it the humongous fungus, out in the Blue Mountains in Oregon. I don't know if you've come across that, but it, um, it's pretty good. So, yeah, so most of that's like underground, but when they've done genetic testing on it, they know that these mushrooms are all um, related, right? So they think it's one colony, which is several kilometres wide. So you mentioned that there's a huge variation in, in the, the fungi kingdom. So do we have any clue how numerous and varied they actually are? We estimate somewhere in a region of about 2 million different species, um, but some estimates have put that up as high as 5 million, some have been a bit lower. So we, we know that a lot of these fungi exist, but we don't know an awful lot about them. And that's partly because a lot of fungi, we just don't know how to grow in a lab, right? So we can do, like, say, genetic testing of like a, a soil sample, and we can look for pieces of DNA that we know, tell us that fungi are there. But that piece of DNA doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what carbon sources that fungus likes or, or what temperature it likes to grow at. And, you know, we can make some educated guesses based on where we found it, but that doesn't necessarily translate into growing it in a lab. So we, we know there's a huge diversity of fungi out there, but the true diversity, we, we still don't really know. So what makes them so difficult to grow then? Because you often see, you, you know, you get wild mushrooms are very popular in restaurants and things. And people say they're, they're incredibly difficult to farm, even though that would be a really lucrative business if you actually could. What makes them so difficult? To, to farm or to grow? I mean, 
I think one thing we need to remember about fungi is that they are shapeshifters. So although we see these mushrooms, that doesn't mean that it started off its life as a, a mushroom, right? So usually what happens is, I mean, most fungi will produce spores and it'll make these airborne. And then those spores will then go on to, um, you know, germinate and form a new type of cell, usually something like a, like a mycelium, right? So a sort of long, thin type of cell. And then these can then make networks. And then eventually you can get um, these fruiting bodies, which are called, you know, which look like mushrooms. But in order to make the spores, and often what you need are the different fungal cells have to undergo um, sexual reproduction. And that's a process that's actually really quite complicated because it involves, you know, sort of genetic mixing and things like that. You usually need um, fungal cells of different genetic types in order for that process to happen. The environmental conditions are also quite important for this as well. And that's something that's very difficult to replicate in a lab. And so that can be one of the reasons why it's quite difficult to grow because you're not only just trying to get the particular fungal species that you're interested in to grow, but you're also trying to get them to shapeshift into the shape that you really want. And so that's what can make them quite quite hard to grow. But that, that's not true of all species, of course. There are some uh, fungus that just seem to pop up everywhere, like the, the moulds. Yeah, so you mentioned that they're, they're, they're sort of deeply embedded in their environments. So what sort of role do they play in the various ecosystems that they live in? Um, I mean, fungi are sort of typically considered the decomposers, right? So they're really important for our environment in terms of getting rid of things like dead animals or dead plants, uh, matter and things like that. So they're really important. That's when we often see mushrooms, right, around decaying trees and, and things like that. So yeah, so they're, they're really important from that perspective, but they're also found in um, other surprising places as well. So I think there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about our microbiome, right, and having good bacteria and bad bacteria, but fungi are also a really important part um, of our microbiome as well. So you have a lot of yeast species that actually reside in your gut. And so that's another place which we can find them. And there have been some studies to suggest that these fungi might also be important for you know, our gut health or are keeping us healthy, um, but potentially also predisposing us to different diseases as well. So this is still an area that we still don't really understand an awful lot about and something that we're trying to understand more. Yeah, so going back to something that you mentioned earlier, that they're actually closer to animals than they are to plants. So you often hear a sort of pop culture stat thrown around that humans share something like, I might be wrong here, something like 50% of our DNA with fungi. So what does that actually mean? In practical terms, what it means is it's really, really difficult to make um, antifungal drugs. So um, we actually have very limited numbers of antifungal drugs. So when fungi start causing infections, it's hard for us to get rid of them. So we actually have a handful um, of antifungal drugs available to treat you, you know, if you were to come to hospital with them. And the reason for that is, um, as I mentioned, because they're so closely related, their biochemistry is very similar to ours. So if you're trying to make uh, like a drug that's going to be toxic to the, the, fungal, the fungus to actually you know, cause it to die, you have to make sure you're targeting some kind of biochemical process in the fungus that's not going to target the same biochemical process in our cells. And that's what's led um, us to being uh, quite hard to develop these different uh, antifungal drugs. And so that's why we're much more limited there than we are for in comparison to antibiotics, for example, where we have hundreds of different types. Yeah, so let's move on to this recent uh, World Health Organization report then that recently said fungus is a growing threat to human life. Something like, I think it said 2 million people a year die from fungal infections, you know. Is, is, this, is this really a legitimate concern? Yes, absolutely. So I think we have been ignoring fungal infections for a very long time. And um, so it's, it was really pleasing to see the World Health Organization actually making a point of this um, problem that we're having. 
Part of the reason for that is that fungal infections are not really um, natural infections of humans. Actually, as humans, we're quite resistant to fungal um, infections. Our immune systems are really, really good at fighting the, these fungi. The problem um, comes in when your immune system becomes damaged. So if you have some kind of component of your immune system missing, or there, there are various different drugs, actually, I mentioned antibiotics. Antibiotics can do this as well. They can damage our immune system in such a way that this creates holes in our immune defences, and then fungi can get in and cause problems. Now, what's happened over the last sort of half century or so is that people who have damaged immune systems have increased. So that population has massively expanded. So to give you an example, um, the AIDS pandemic would be a good one, right? So you have lots of people who have now um, living with HIV. They are now very susceptible to getting various different fungal infections. Lots of cancers as well. So um, we give a lot of um, drugs to treat cancers, but these drugs have the um, side effect that they can damage our immune system. And as a result, we see um, fungal infections popping up in various cancer patients as well. And so that's why fungal infections are really problematic right now, because we're dealing with a, a group of patients who are very difficult to treat and very clinically complex. And as I said, we were limited in our antifungal drugs and on top of that as well. And so that's why it's really important that we try and understand a bit more about how fungal infections cause disease and how the immune system what, what, what is the damage in the immune system that actually leads to these fungal infections so that we can try and circumvent that? So what are some common fungal infections then, you know, that perhaps the, our listeners may have heard of? So probably the most common one that everyone will have heard of is uh, thrush, right? So this is caused by a yeast called um, candida. Um, so there's a lot of different species of candida, but this is uh, sometimes known as like the white fungus. Um, so it's a yeast and it, when it grows in the lab, it grows in a very white colour. Um, and this is one actually that's part of your microbiome. So well, most of us actually have it in our gut. But say there are certain things that can cause um, damage to the immune system that this fungus can then start causing infections. So a common one is antibiotics. So if you take antibiotics for a long time or you have several courses of these, then these infections can come up. And so and when it causes infections either, you know, on your gums or on your tongue or in the vagina, then, then we call this thrush. Um, so that's a really, really common infection. So we think billions of uh, people around the world get thrush infections every year. But it can also become very dangerous. Um, so this is when it becomes invasive candidiasis. So that's when the yeast gets into your bloodstream and in invades into the different um, organs like the kidney and the liver. And that can cause multi-organ failure. So that's a much rarer um, form of the infection, but it, it's still um, pretty common, as I said, in people who have you know severely damaged immune systems. So that's probably one of the more common ones in the UK. Um, another common one that we see in the UK is um, aspergillosis. So this is a, a mould infection in the lung. So again, this tends to affect people who have um, various lung problems like cystic fibrosis, um, you know, lung transplant patients. They can be quite susceptible to this type of um, infection as well. So that's um, particularly common in the UK in terms of dangerous fungal infections. And then probably the biggest killer of, of humans uh, from, a, from a fungal infection is a disease called cryptococcal meningitis. So that's a really big problem for people who have uh, HIV. So um, particularly end stage um, towards AIDS. So cryptococcal meningitis kills, we think, around 100,000 people every year, um, mostly in sub-Saharan Africa where the burden of HIV is at the highest, but also where the um, access to various antifungal drugs um, is, is a bit, bit, bit more limited there as well. Um, so these are the sort of, I would say, the three big killers. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier that the, the, the kingdom, uh, the fungi kingdom, is in incredibly varied. I mean, does that cross over to the, the infections? Are the infections equally varied? Um, I guess it depends on who you ask and, and, and how you look at it. So 
I think one of the traits that all of these fungi share that cause infections is that they can actually grow our body temperature. So the vast majority of fungi can't do that. So as I said, there's millions of different species, but actually only a handful will cause human infections, right? And that's partly because they all share this trait that they can grow at 37 degrees Celsius. So they're all sort of um, similar in that respect. Most of the fungi that will cause infections in humans are not from the, the mushroom sort of family. Fungi exist in these sort of, uh, we sort of group fungi into two main families. So there's the ascomycota and the basidiomycota. So most fungi that cause infections are in that ascomycota family. And that includes your yeasts, like your brewer's yeast, but also the, the candida and the aspergillus that I mentioned um, that cause infections in humans. And most of your mushrooms are found in the other one, the basidiomycota. And there's only really one sort of fungal pathogen that we find within that, and that's the cryptococcus fungi which cause the, the meningitis and AIDS patients. So I would say that most pathogens are mostly um, more closely related because they're in the ascomycota, but not necessarily. So there are exceptions to that rule. And even within the ascomycota, they can still be quite genetically distinct. So in evolutionary terms, they're still very far apart, but they do share certain traits which allow them to cause infections, such as being able to grow um, at our body temperature, 37 degrees Celsius, because that's, a, that's an unusual trait um, amongst the fungal kingdom as a whole. Yeah, so you mentioned earlier the, the difficulty with developing drugs to treat fungal infections. So how do we currently go about developing drugs for, for these infections? So there's a couple of approaches. Um, one is that we can actually still look for new targets. So there's still a lot about fungal biology that we don't understand. Um, you know, I mentioned how with so many fungi we don't know how to grow. And then for the, you know, the ones that cause infections, there's still a lot about their biology we don't understand. So there's a lot of groups trying to understand that biology because if you can understand you know, for example, how that fungus responds to stress, like, you know, oxidative stress. So, you know, um, like we talk about, you know, oxygen radicals and things like that that can be made by our immune system. If you can understand how the fungus is trying to defend itself against those defences, then maybe we could design a drug to kind of counteract that defence of the fungus. Um, so that is one approach. And then one approach, uh, which is one that my lab uh, favours because we're an immunology uh, lab, is to try and do uh, immune boosting drugs. So finding, uh, trying to understand what is the immune system needs to fight a fungal infection. Because if you can understand that, then maybe you can then replace what's missing in your patient who's getting the fungal infection. So we can do this by treating with maybe cell types of transfers. So people have done these types of experimental treatments with cancer, for example, um, but you can also treat with uh, molecules called cytokines. So these are like little signaling proteins that we use that activate immune responses. So we try to understand how those work in the context of a fungal infection so that you can try and potentially use that as a strategy. And I think in reality, what you'd end up doing is a combination of both. So you would have a patient who you give an antifungal drug to to try and slow the growth of the fungus, but you would also give them a drug that could help boost the immune response at the same time and then in that way, try and treat your patient against a fungal infection. Yeah, so how do we, how do fungal infections spread? You know, how do we get them and can you pass them on to other people? So we mostly get fungal infections from breathing in their spores. So most fungal spores are airborne, so we breathe them in all the time. And as I said, if you've got a nice healthy immune system, actually you're, you're being exposed constantly. You're, you're breathing them in every single time you go outside. It's only when the immune system is damaged that that, may, that that spore might not get destroyed by the immune system and it might germinate inside your lung. And then the fungus can then shapeshift into a yeast or one of these mycelium or, or something like that. And that's when you can get the infection. There's not much evidence to suggest that once the fungus shapeshifts from a spore into another cell type in your lung, that it would go back into spores. 
So it's not like we're breathing out spores and then we, we would infect other people. So there's not much evidence that fungi are infectious diseases in that sense. Um, so it's not like a virus where you, if you're near an infected person, you might catch it. And so fungal infections typically don't spread like that. You, you tend to get your fungal infection from the environment instead. Okay, so sort of jumping off from that, so we're talking about fungal infections. So um, one thing that a lot of people are talking about at the moment is the TV show, The the Last of Us, which is um, the the central premise is that the human race is infected with a fungus that turns them into, I don't know, violent zombies, I suppose you could call them. (laughs) And um, in the series, the the fungus that causes the problem is, is a cordyceps. So this is actually a real fungus, isn't it? Yes, that's right. So um, again, this is a large group of species known as the cordyceps uh, fungi. They mostly infect insects. And then within that, there's even smaller number of the cordyceps fungi that when they infect insects, they actually seem to be able to exert some kind of mind control. So they'll infect the nervous system of the insect and control the insect's movements. These uh, cordyceps fungi are very well adapted to their hosts. So you'll have one type of cordyceps that will infect an ant, say, and another one that will affect a grasshopper, one that will infect a spider and so on. So they're very, um, you know, kind of specific to their different hosts. Yeah, that, that, that's where um, we see a lot of similarities with the TV show and what we see when the insect becomes infected, they start to move kind of against their will. And usually what's happening is the fungus is trying to force the, the ant or the insect to a site where the fungus can germinate and release more spores, and thus uh, it's spreading the uh, infection that way. But there, I, I, there's no evidence that cordyceps currently infects humans. So how does it actually, what happens then when it takes over the host? Is that the, the insect inhales the spores and they, they grow inside it, something like that? Yeah, so there's some evidence suggests that the fungus actually seems to almost go into sort of like the, the musculature and the, and the nervous system of the um, ant. And we think that that then helps control how the, fun- how the ant is then going to move. Um, I think exactly how that works is not particularly well understood because, you know, while we don't understand an awful lot about um, immunity to fungal infections in humans, I think there's even less known about that in insects as well. <laughs> so there's still a lot of big unanswered uh, questions there um, about exactly how that works. So the, the cordyceps is having um, an effect on the insect. I mean, does this have anything in common with, you know, say, like psilocybin mushrooms and things like that, which obviously have a potent effect on human brains? I think that's a really good question and not one I think anyone's really tried to answer yet, actually. <laughs> I think those fungi are quite divergent, so I don't know if it would be exactly the same effects, but it's, it's an interesting question, but it's, it's one I'm afraid I can't answer because we've we've not looked. (laughs) Are there any fungal infections that can spread to the human brain? Yes, um, so a lot of them can actually. So as I I mentioned earlier about cryptococcal meningitis, so that's a fungus, again, we um, inhale the spores to get into our lung and it can cause a pneumonia type of disease in the lung. Um, But actually when most patients present is when it's already in the brain. So it gets out of the lung, the fungus gets out of the lung and into the brain. And we don't quite understand how that happens. We think what probably happens is that the the lung gets damaged and maybe you get some bleeding. The fungus gets into the blood and then it can traffic its way up into into the brain. And once it's in the brain, it causes um, significant problems there, as you can uh, imagine. So a lot of the symptoms you see are kind of typical symptoms of meningitis. You know, you might have vision loss, seizures, you know, memory problems, that, that type of thing. And it can cause very significant damage. So even people who survive that infection are often left very, you know, with neurological impairments as well. But the other fungi that I mentioned, like the candida yeasts and the aspergillus, they've also can cause significant brain infections in humans. Although with those ones, 
that tends to only happen in patients who have been left untreated for one reason or another. So if you let the infection run its natural course, most of them will end up in the brain. And that's usually the most lethal form of the infection. So that's that's the most dangerous and the most difficult one to, to treat. So in, in the show, The Last of Us, the, like, the, the way that they get around the fact that the, as you mentioned earlier, the 37 degree temperature of the human body isn't suitable for a suitable environment for cordyceps, for example, in the show to live in. They get around this by saying that actually they've adapted to increased temperatures that have resulted due to climate change. And that's allowed them to make the jump from insects to human hosts. Obviously, that's probably a bit of a jump, but is there any, is there any reality in, in that idea? So there is some reality in that idea, and there are actually some examples where we think fungi have adapted to warming global temperatures. So not cordyceps, uh, which might put some people at ease, but there are some other fungi that are causing us um, quite a big uh, concern. So um, I mentioned the candida species, and there's a particular um, species of candida yeast called candida auris. Now, that, we had never really heard of that before 2009. So it was a kind of it's a fairly new emerging species of this yeast. And the reason that um, we're very concerned about it is because it is adapted to grow at much warmer temperatures. So in a lab, for example, you can grow right up to 42 degrees Celsius. And that's very unusual for, for a fungus. Um, and it can cause infections in people who have defective immune responses. One of the reasons that we are particularly concerned about it is since 2009, it's appeared in uh, three different continents. And they also appear to have we seem to have detected it in these continents almost simultaneously. And when they've done genetic testing on, say, candida auris from Europe versus North America, what we find is actually they're genetically distinct. So it's not as if it was first discovered um, it was first discovered in Asia and it's just moved or spread around the world. It actually seems to have independently picked up this trait in different locations around the world. And that's kind of weird, right? <laughs> so we're, we're, it, that's, it's still um, very much a theory, but um, based on some of the um, research that we're doing right now, um, that does seem to be a viable theory that the global warming temperatures has actually given rise to this fungus called Candida auris. And the other major concern we have about that fungus is it's inherently resistant to many of our antifungal drugs. So it's sometimes referred to as the first fungal superbug because um, we have very, very um, limited ways of treating um, that particular infection. And so that's a particularly big concern for a lot of um, healthcare, you know, uh, like the CDC, for example, are, are watching this closely. Yeah, I mean, not, not to be alarmist, but is, is it possible that a previously undiscovered fungus could come to light that presents a threat to human life? I, th I think so, yeah. So for example, there are some other species that have um, only really been described in the last couple of decades, um, if that, that we really didn't know anything about, but have started to cause infection, particularly in Africa, for example. So there's various countries there that have been reporting um, another fungus that, again, we had not really heard very much about um, at all until quite recently. So yeah, I, I think it, it is a, a concern. It's something that we definitely need to be paying more attention to. But our surveillance uh, that we do for fungal infections is much more limited compared to, say, bacterial or viral infections. So a lot of these fungal infections that I've mentioned are not reportable. So there's a lot of hospitals, for example, that would not report that they've had a person who has died from that infection. And that makes um, it very difficult for us to understand how big the problem really is. So there's a lot of campaigns now to try and make sure that we change that uh, so we can think a lot more about how to figure out how, how, how big a problem is the uh, fungal diseases and which fungal species are the biggest problem that we need to be worried about. So there's not like a sort of international protocol in, in effect whereby scientists keep track of any potentially emerging threats or things like that or even the picture as a whole? 
No, no. So there are some uh, research groups out there that are trying their best, you know, with the data that they have and they're, you know, publishing reports to try and uh, put that data out there. But it really is the effort of a, a small number of people. There's, there's no concerted effort to monitor all fungal infections as a whole. So, yeah, that, that does make it very difficult for us to understand where uh, or how policy might need to change in different countries, for example, to best tackle this problem. Yeah, another thing that I, I found from watching the TV show that I think a lot of people would be interested in is the network of, of fungi seem to be able to communicate with one another. And I've, I've read some studies saying that this type of thing, you know, is this something that they're, they're actually able to do? Yes, I mean, uh, I think a lot of the sort of environmental fungi, particularly ones that grow, you know, like say in forests and things like that, they can make these vast networks and use that to communicate with one another. So as I mentioned, these kind of like mycelium type cells, you know, these can grow and merge into one another and almost create highways, which they can use to pass um, information. And say these can become very, very large, right? So we sort of talked about that humongous fungus in Oregon. That can be um, a good example of how you have this huge um, network where presumably there is a lot of um, communication happening between those mushrooms at different sites. That was the University of Birmingham's Rebecca Drummond. Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius, brought to you from the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine. The current issue of BBC Science Focus is out now. Pick up a copy wherever you buy your favourite magazines or download a digital copy from your preferred app store. You can, of course, also find us online at sciencefocus.com.